Hi, and welcome to the Willow Ridge Church Weekly Podcast. This is where you can find audio for our current and past sermons. We hope that you enjoy this week's installment, and be sure to check back next week to hear the latest message. Thanks for listening. your Bibles with you today, go ahead and open up to Galatians chapter 3. As you turn there, uh, what we're going to talk about today is family. We're talking about family dynamics and family characteristics. I don't think uh, any of us can deny that the family that we come from, our biological family that we come from, sets within us certain characteristics and certain traits that from time to time tend to come out in us. And so when we are surrounded by our family, largely that's when those characteristics come out. Let me give you an example. So this weekend, uh, we had a, a wedding that we attended, a wedding that I officiated, and it was for my cousin's daughter. And so we travel back into Augusta, and we're there at the wedding, and our family, which is an extremely large family, and as I look around, I begin to notice all of the family characteristics that come out in our family. My family, we're loud, right? There's a lot of us, and we're loud, My family doesn't do a very good job of establishing boundaries of what is or isn't appropriate to talk about, right? It's kind of a no holds barred, all secrets are out there. This is how we talk and interact with each other. My family is also known for a characteristic of big hair, right? And I'm not just talking about the ladies in my family either, right? Like we, we, this is who we are. And when we gather around each other, even if we haven't seen each other in a while, those characteristics tend to come out of us as we come back together, even if it's been a long time since we've been around each other. We're a lot of us. There's, we're loud. We have big personalities. And when you're new coming into that dynamic, sometimes it can feel a little bit uncomfortable. It can feel a little bit awkward. Let me ask a question uh, to everyone in the room. How many of you felt like you married in to a big, loud family, and it was, took some adjustment for you, right? This is great. Leave your hands up. I want to look, look around and see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is, that is great. That is wonderful. Um, someone who married into a big, loud family was my wife, right? She doesn't come from that. That's not her family dynamic. And the first time she met my family— she understood that this was different. I'll never forget, Aaron and I had been out on a couple of dates. I think you had been introduced to my parents, but never really in that interaction. And, and so we were going to have her over uh, to dinner at my parents' house. And so being the guest, she got to go fix her plate first. And in my mom's kitchen, I believe at that time was a rectangle or no, it was an oval table. And my mom looked at her and she said, please fix your plate first and sit anywhere that you like. So my wife went and she fixed her plate and she went and sat down and waited patiently as we all made our way to the table. My dad, who was the second one to fix his plate, comes walking up to my wife and says, move, you're in my seat. 
Now she stared at him, thinking obviously this man's joking. Obviously, this is the first time that I've met him. He wouldn't say that to me. And my dad just stood there and held his plate until she got up because she was in her seat. And in spite of all of that, she stuck. She's, she, there was so much that she saw in me. She said, that's worth it, right? That's, that's worth it. But here's the remarkable thing that I've begun to notice out of my wife. For the first several family gatherings, as we would all get together, roughly, and I'm talking about immediate family, like first cousins and, and aunts and uncles, as about 80 of us will gather together for, for holidays and for birthdays and events, what I began to notice that would come out of my wife was a little bit of the family characteristics that we had, that her family doesn't have. She had to understand, no, 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 when my dad says that, you have to tell him where he can go, Right? Like you've got to fight back with it, that the personality begins to come out and the characteristics that are there. And it was like, but what in the world are you talking about with this? As my family has individual characteristics of what we're known for, and as people who are around us, when you see us and you talk to us and you come to our family gatherings, what you will see and what you will experience. And even if you are around long enough and you continue to come back, and maybe even if you are brought into or you come into the family, what you will notice that will happen is that some of those very same characteristics will come out in you. What we're going to read in, in Galatians chapter 3 are these family dynamics and family characteristics that the body of Christ should be known for. Not just our church, not just the church at Galatia, but the body of Christ as a whole regardless of culture, regardless of context, regardless of setting, that these should be the characteristics that spring forth from them, that cross denominational lines, that cross ethnic lines, that when churches are, are centered in and rooted in and based off the belief of the biblical Jesus Christ, that this is what should come forth in our lives. And so you and I have the opportunity to look at these and honestly assess ourselves as individuals, to assess ourselves as an individual body of Christ, and to assess the whole, the whole body and say, is this what is seen? Are these the characteristics that we portray? Is this what is naturally coming from us if we are a part of the family? So we'll start reading in Galatians 3, starting in verse 26. Paul writes, he says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. 
In the same way also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So Paul begins in the very first verse by establishing that this applies to believers. He says, since we are now in Christ, the embodiment of the church, the basis of our faith, That now since we are in Christ, we have gained a spirit of obedience, right? This is what we've been building up to, that we are not saved by the law, that we don't put our faith in the law, that the law doesn't produce what we, the Christ-like characteristics, but we put our faith in Christ and through his spirit working in our lives, what comes from us is this spirit of obedience that we no longer have to, but we desire to be obedient to what God's called us to because of who he is and what he's done in us. And so our obedience to Jesus is the overflow of the spirit of God inside of us. So that when I find myself in moments of obedience, when I find myself desiring the love of the Lord, that what that is coming from me is fruit is what comes from me is the spirit of God and I can celebrate the miracle that's happening as dead bones become alive and it's what we begin to see happening in our lives and so Paul begins to talk through these characteristics of of who we are now that we are in Christ and the first thing that he says is that he gives us a command that we need to put on Christ And the imagery of what he is communicating to us is that we are now clothed in Christ. We are now, as in Christ, we are clothed in Christ. Now, clothing is used a lot in the Bible. And it's used a lot specifically to communicate something. We first see clothing enter in in the early parts of Genesis in the garden after sin entered the world. And God gave it to Adam and Eve in the garden to cover their shame. We see it on the teaching of the prodigal, right, in the parable that Jesus taught, that as the prodigal came back to the father, what the father did was the first thing is he gives him the proper clothing to establish his standing in the family. While it isn't necessary clothing, we see where Paul talks about putting on the armor of God, right, the covering that will protect the believers every day. And in Revelation 19, in the return of Christ, the imagery is painted of him as he returns. And of all of the things that could be described, what we see is the robe that Christ is wearing, the white robe that has been dipped in blood. And clothing is an important part of what is going on in the Bible. And every time that the clothing is described, every time that it is given in these examples, What we see, what is being communicated is the identity of the person who is wearing the clothes. Clothing is always connected to the identity. With Adam and Eve, the clothing is used because they've sinned. With the prodigal, the clothing is used because he's returned. 
with the armor of God is because in our limitations, it's what we need for a spiritual survival on a day-to-day basis. And in Revelation 19, it's Christ who fought the battle and he won the victory. It's Christ in his purity, but dipped in blood through the struggle and what he's gained. So what does it mean for you and I to be clothed in Christ? What is the imagery that is being pressed forward? Well, the first thing that we can understand to be clothed in Christ, it means that our identity has changed. Think of the clothing of Christ of being like a uniform, that when people see you in the uniform, they now know who you are and they now know what you do because your identity is in that. Paul here connects it to them with baptism. Just as you've been baptized in Christ, now put on Christ. Be clothed in him. You know, for many of the people that Paul wrote to, for many people even still all over the world, baptism in itself can be a death sentence. Because it's not just simply about an act of obedience that's done into a church. But it's an act of breaking away from what you were before, so now you're identified in this now. And so Paul says, just as you were baptized, just as you were brought out and you are now identified as new, so too put on Christ so that he is your uniform, so that he is your identity, so that when people see you, this is what they see but also that when we put on Christ, the imagery that we begin to understand is that we experience closeness. I want to be honest with you. Nothing right now is closer to me than the clothes that I'm wearing. Just as the shirt, nothing is between this sleeve and my skin. It rests on it. There's the form fit that is there, that it rests on me. And so too is the imagery that just as our clothing is the closest to us, now that we've put on Christ, now that we are in him, there's a closeness that rests on us in Christ. There's the intimacy that this gives us, that there is nothing, no human relationship, no circumstance, no setting, nothing that can come in between us and him as this rests on me, so too is he. And so we take that and begin to think through that in our lives. The power and the importance of the closeness of Christ, that nothing comes between, nothing can be closer than. Why? Because it's who we are. And then lastly, as we understand the clothing, what it means to be clothed in Christ, and you celebrate this, we're fully covered. We're fully covered. That when you see me, what you see are my clothes. You don't see what's underneath. You don't see who I am. Instead, you see the clothes that I've put on. So that when we are clothed in Christ, what is seen in us by God is fully Christ. And what is seen in us by man is the portrait of Christ that we are painting with our lives. The testimony of our actions of who we are. So Paul says, every single day, if we're going to be a part of the family, if this is who we are, if this should come out from us, then in every single 
aspect we put on Christ. Our identity, our closeness, fully covered by him. But he continues on, look back at verse 28. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you all are, 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 you, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What Paul moves to here in a church that is fighting against division is he communicates them that a family characteristic is unity, and that what happens is you and I, that we are unified in Christ. Now, Paul attacks some issues in the culture then, which I would argue are issues in our culture and in our churches today. The first thing he says is there's neither Jew nor Greek. He attacks the race and the culture barrier. He comes back and says there's neither slave nor free. He attacks the socioeconomic barrier. And he says there is no male or female, and he attacks the gender barrier that is there. Now, this has to be something that within ourselves begins to rest, that within ourselves we truly begin to evaluate where we are as individuals as we comprise the body of believers within the church. Because where we are in these categories is the reflective of the body of all of us together. Friday, I got a call from a, a pastor. And we talked about some things that were going on in his church. And he said, Bo, he said, I wish that God would call me to leave, but he won't. Your church is dwindling and declining they're not a church in our area. They're down to about 25 people. And he said, I've hit the point where I don't know what to do because the people want to know what we can do to grow. But when God brings us growth, when he brings us life, they run against it. I said, well, explain to me what's going on. He said, last year we started an Awana program to reach our community around us. He said, and God blessed it. He said, but we're a church of 25 people, and we had 100 kids on average coming to Awanas. And I sat down at the end of the first year, and I was so excited about where we could go and so excited about how we could move forward. And he said, we had 10 workers who were there every single week for Awanas. And I looked at him and I said, all right, it's been a great year. Here's what God's done. Who's coming back with me? And he said, one person stood and raised their hand. And he said, I'm not coming back. And he said, I'm sorry, well, but why? And before he could tell the reason why, seven others raised their hand and said, we're not coming back either. The pastor said, I don't understand. Could you explain to me why you were deciding to no longer be a part of something that God is obviously blessing? And he said, well, I began to weep when they told me. He said, the answer of the reason why they weren't coming back is they said to me, there's too many black kids here. And he said, I just wish God would remove me, but he won't, but he won't, but he won't. Unity in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek Slave nor free, male nor female. 
when God establishes Christ, what he's establishing within us is a new humanity. A new humanity. Verse 28 literally means that you are all one person in Christ. There is now no longer any difference, but we are one in him. And what begins, what resonates within us, what we have to come to is we must acknowledge that our relationship to one another My relationship to you, your relationship to me, and your relationships amongst each other are no longer based in anything else, but are solely based in our relationship with Christ. So that when it comes to salvation, that there is no difference among us. But the Bible teaches whether you are black, whether you are white, whether you are wealthy, whether you are poor, whether you are male, or whether you are female, is that we all under the law are equal and we're guilty and that we all under Christ are equal and we've been set free. This is why Paul was so adamant in Galatians because what he's fighting against, what he's pushing toward is the Judaizers there saying, no, 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 no. There's Christ, but there's still Jew and there's still Greek. There's still the difference and the gospel doesn't ring true in that situation. And this has been working in my heart this week. That when I look out and I see, if I take myself and I compare to a minority in the church, while our skin, our culture, our past experiences, and oftentimes our opportunities may be different, our desperate need for Jesus and our salvation in him is the same. Me compared to someone in a lower tax bracket or someone in a higher tax bracket means that our finances, the homes we live in, the schools we send our kids to, the clothes we wear may all be different, but our desperate need for Jesus and our salvation in him is the same. When I look at someone of the opposite sex, while in our world, oftentimes our opportunities are different, Our perspectives are different. Our understanding and our roles may be different. Our desperate need for Jesus and our salvation in him is the same. So that when it comes to the need of the gospel, when it comes to the freedom that we've experienced through the gospel, that there is no race, there is no social status, there is no gender because we have been made one in Christ. And if the church doesn't reflect that, nothing will. I read an author and he said this, the kind of equality Paul has in mind is not the kind that obliterates every every racial, social, or sexual distinction. When it comes to Christ, we do not cease to be white or black bosses or employees or men and women. But with regard to our physical and social identity, we continue to be what we have always been, only now we are what we are in Christ. I recognize there's a difference between my wife and I. I understand that there's a difference with many of you who are out here who are minorities and myself. I understand that there are differences in the battles and in the work life and in all of the different things that establish our socioeconomic world between the different people in here. 
but that in Christ, in Christ, we are one. And this is what comes to this importance of where Paul began in this and where he will conclude is because in him, we are all heirs in Christ. Chapter three, verse 26. I want to draw a distinction of a word that he uses. He says, we are all sons of God. Jump down to chapter four, verse six. Because you are sons, verse seven, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So what in the world is happening here? Is Paul only speaking to men? Has he forgotten about the women? And that's not the case at all. What Paul is doing is he's speaking to something that culturally they would understand. And it's the concept of sonship. It's the concept of sonship. In the Bible, let's establish some things. All people are made in the image of God. In Acts chapter 17, Paul establishes that all of mankind, every man, every woman, and every child is considered a child of God. But in Scripture, only the saved are his sons because only sons gain inheritance. You see, Paul isn't trying to correct a social norm or aspect that's there. But what Paul is doing is he's speaking to something that would have been understood by every man, woman, and child who would read this as he pens this letter. That in the ancient Middle East culture, dictated that only sons gain inheritance. And so what Paul is doing here, he's saying there's a wonderful beauty of a transformation of what takes place when someone is in Christ. That being in him, a full transformation happens. Jews and Greeks, slave and free, men and women, that in only the power of Christ, of what Christ can do, that those who are in him drop all of that and become sons. Everyone equal to gain the inheritance of what is possible to them through God. It's the transformation of what happens. And so I look at my daughter, and I can tell her through the power of Christ that you gain a sonship. You gain an inheritance in him. That I can look at someone of a different race and say the transformation of what happens is you become a son of Christ. In him, you become, you gain the inheritance. You gain these. We are adopted into the family. And so Paul goes on to explain the dynamic of what this looks like. And he says in chapter 4 that there's a time in a child's life before he'll gain an inheritance where he's actually in the same standing as the slave. And as long as the child is the minor, he's treated the same way. But there comes a point in time which is designated by the father that he experiences the benefits of inheritance even before the inheritance is his. That there's a point before it's fully handed over that we begin to experience this. 
And he says, and it happens. It happens through the power of what God's doing. That first, that God sent the Son to make the way for it to be possible, painting all the way back to what Paul's continually reminding on of the gospel, that of what is needed to be saved, that it is through Jesus and through Christ alone that salvation happens. But then he says that something remarkable happens is that not only made possible through the relationship with the Son, but that he sends the Spirit to indwell in the lives of the believers and what the Spirit Spirit is doing is he's speaking into the heart of the individual two special words, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, and that as the Spirit does that, what you and I get to experience here is the beautiful picture of living in the inheritance that God has given us. So what in the world does that mean? What does it mean that the Spirit is living in us, crying out, Abba, Father? Well, the word Abba describes the relationship that a child has with his or her father. It describes a closeness of what's there. It describes an intimacy that can only be experienced. And that is the inheritance that we have now. My daughter has always been scared of storms, always. She still is a little scared of storms, but what really gets her, she tries to act tough, and she's always tried to act tough, is the thunder. And so I'll kind of miss these days a little bit, but when she was real little, laying in bed, South Carolina, early springtime, you hear the rain start to come, and then you start to see the pops of lightning. And then the lightning gets closer and closer and closer. And the house that we lived in before, the house we live in now, we had really old windows. And when the lightning would get really close and the thunder would get really strong, eventually you would hear and the whole house would shake, but especially the windows would rattle. And I never forget, you could always time it. The closer and the closer it got, finally there'd be the big one. And it didn't matter if it was nine o'clock at night or three o'clock in the morning. When the big one hit, you'd hear. And then she'd jump in the bed with me. And she'd grab my arm and she'd wrap it around her. Why? Why? Because in her moment of struggle, in her moment of pain, In her moment of fear, what she needed from her daddy was affection, the closeness of my touch, and the trust that everything would be okay. You know this. I can't stop the lightning. I can't make it go away. I can't quiet it down. But there was enough of a relationship with her father that when that situation happened, I'm what she wanted, and you could even argue that I'm what she needed. When the Spirit cries out, Abba, Father, in the original language, there's two words that that communicates, an affection and a trust, so that the Spirit residing in us cries out, God, I love you, and I desperately, desperately need you. And here's what's remarkable. 
He is the one that quiets the storm. He is the one that controls the wind and the rain. He is the one whose affection is perfect. And he is the one whose trust he will never break. Time and time again. And we experience that because we've been adopted, because we are heirs, because we are brought into the family. Would you pray with me? God, we come to you this morning. God, seeing the characteristics, understanding what the family looks like. Lord, I pray for us as a body of believers that in every single moment, that in every single day, that in every single aspect of our life, that we would put on Christ. That when people see us, that that's what they would see. That we would experience a closeness that we can't obtain on our own, but is found in putting you on, that nothing would be closer. No person would be closer. No circumstance would be closer. But that, Lord, that we would be clothed in you. Lord, I pray for a unity in Christ. That we recognize that the beauty of the local body is that there is diversity. Lord, may we never all be the same. May we never fight for everyone to have the same background or everyone to have the same skin color or Lord, everyone to speak the same language. But Lord, may we always strive for diversity because diversity in the local body is the reflection of the diversity, Lord, in your church as a whole. But could we acknowledge, Lord, could we work toward, could we understand that in Christ, in Christ, there is the same standing regardless of our race regardless of our culture regardless of our bank account regardless of our job or our education or that we could see that in Christ there's unity amongst the genders Lord, that my wife should be treated by me. It's the person who she is in you. Lord, where we have a tendency, where we have a, a bent of our heart that is sinful to long to make things want to look like us Lord could you break us from that Lord set us free from that Lord for the friend of mine at the church that he's at Lord I thank you for the strength of his call Lord I pray for his church Lord, I pray that the people who think what they think, Lord, I pray that right now what would happen is not a change in a mindset, but a change in their heart. Lord, that they would be saved first and foremost. Lord, and from that you would renew 
the evil pit of racism that indwells in them. Lord, that comes straight from hell, that divides, that defeats, and that slanders the name of Christ. Set them free. Lord, I pray that this morning that we would live like heirs. We would cry out what the Spirit proclaims in our heart. Abba, Father, our affection is found in you. That our trust is found in you. And that no matter what life brings at us, no matter what circumstances come, that as a little girl runs to her earthly father, so too can we as the children of God run to him. And Lord, you wrap your arms around us. Lord, you calm the storm. Lord, sometimes you let the storm keep going, but your arms are right there with us. And we're not strong because of who we are. Lord, we're strong because the Abba Father is there with us. Thanks again for listening to the Willow Ridge Church weekly podcast. We hope that you enjoyed listening to this week's message. If you'd like to learn more about who we are or explore additional resources, visit us online at www.willowridgechurch.com or by searching for Willow Ridge Church on Facebook and Instagram.